Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The, the great lesson of this uh, for me is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now. Every single person around this administration, when asked a direct question about contacts with Russians, has lied about it. There have been a lot of Russian operatives, a lot of Russian oligarchs who have been involved with the president. But if you're in President Trump's position, who he was as a businessman, a guy who was bankrupt at least four times, you don't have a lot of lending options. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast, the show about the man who has a trade surplus with Canada and a truth deficit with America, Donald Trump. I'm Jacob Weisberg. And I hope you all read the great story in the New York Times last weekend called The Man Who Knew Too Little. It's about Eric Hagerman, a guy who happens to be an old friend of mine. And since November 8th, 2016, Election Day, Eric has chosen to maintain himself in a totally Trump-free bubble. He lives alone on a pig farm in the middle of Ohio, where he makes sculptures and goes to great effort to make sure he learns nothing at all about what's happening in the country. He's opted out of the news completely. So when Eric drives to the coffee shop in the morning, he listens to white noise on his headphones to make sure he doesn't overhear any stray political chatter while they're making his latte. Instead of moving to Canada, he's built his own. That time story made some people really angry. How dare a privileged person like Eric opt out of the responsibilities of citizenship? In a democracy, don't people have an obligation to stay informed? I think the story also made a lot of people envious. How great would it be to live in a world where Donald Trump doesn't exist, even if that world is a kind of elaborately constructed fantasy? I have friends who are less extreme than Eric who tell me they applaud me doing the show but just can't bring themselves to ever listen to it. Constant exposure to Trump makes them feel horrible, and criticism of Trump is just another form of exposure. Needless to say, I've made pretty much the opposite life choice. I try to find out as much as I possibly can about Trump. I keep up with every important development in the Russia scandal, the Javanka kleptocracy, and the Stormy Daniels saga. By hosting this show, I've made a part of my job to stay maximally informed and to help inform other people about what Donald Trump is doing to the country. I'm not sure it's even a choice for me. I'm just not constituted in a way that lets me delegate my understanding about what's happening to other people. But I understand Eric Hagerman's decision, and in a way, I even admire it. He's taking a moral stand by refusing to let Trump have any power over him. He's a conscientious objector to political reality, constructing his own Midwestern Walden Pond, his one-man utopia. His Potemkin village isn't trying to fool anyone, least of all himself. He's just blocking out a really ugly view. So good luck, Eric, even though you'll never hear this. I'll wake you when it's over and we can talk then. In a moment, I'll be back with Michael Isikoff and David Korn, the authors of the new book Russian Roulette. But first, it turns out that there are some lawyers who really go that extra mile for their clients. 
Hey, Larry, thanks so much for having me over at the firm. Mr. Davison, good to see you. I, I, I'm so glad to make the time for you. Is there anything wrong? I mean, as your corporate attorney, I just wanted to make sure that everything was... Yeah, everything's fine. Um, I actually just had a question for you. Sure. Shoot. I like to try and handle everything for you, make sure you're, you're all good. Okay, great. Yeah. So I've been hearing a lot about NDAs in the news lately. Yeah, they've been in the news. Yeah. <laughs> non-disclosure agreements. Yes, yes, yeah. yes. Non-disclosure it's agreements. Contractive. Yeah. Um, it just seems like there's a lot more of them in the world in general than... Oh, there's more than you, you would imagine. Yeah, more than I imagined. Um, do I have any of those? Do you want to know? Yeah. Well, because I will, I will warn you, and I'm your attorney, so once you know, you know. Yeah, well, that, I mean, that's why I'm here. I want to know. So if, if you could just tell me so I could know. Yes, you do have, uh, you have a handful of NDAs. I have a handful of NDAs? That's right, and I'm looking out for you, and you don't have to worry about a thing. Okay, hold on a second. I'm sorry. Uh, I got you taken care of. No, okay. Um, sorry, real quick. What are the ones I have, though? I feel like I don't have any reason to have an NDA. Do you want to know? Because then once, yes. you, once you know, you know. I know, and I want to know. That's why I'm asking. Well, okay. Are you aware of Midnight Waters? Is that a code for something? No, she's a, an adult film star, Midnight Waters. Oh, no, I've never heard of Midnight Waters. Why, why would I? Well, I don't know. I just, I, I had her sign an NDA not to discuss any relationship or anything that passed between the two of you. What? So don't worry about it. She's not going to, that's, it's an NDA. She, well, well, hold on, hold on a second. I, I wasn't worrying about it at all. I mean, this is making me worry about it. Why you any, shouldn't. She's signed an NDA, so she's not going to discuss anything. What that, would she discuss? There's nothing to discuss. I've never met her well, before. This is, this is why we let the attorneys worry about this, because I'm looking out for you in a sort of just-in-case way. I, I paid her $250,000 to make sure that she... I see the look on your face. Yeah. That's out of my own pocket. I don't want you to worry about that money. You paid someone $250,000 out of your pocket? This is why we don't talk about this stuff. It's my money. Well, I'm just not comfortable with you paying that much money to cover up something that doesn't even exist. I mean, I, mean, I don't want you happen? to worry about that money. That's my money. I don't want you to pay it back. I don't want your business to pay it back. I don't want this. That's what lawyers do. That's not, that's decidedly not what lawyers do. I'm sorry. I mean, I have to, did you go to law school? No, I didn't go to law school. Okay. Don't worry about it. Lawyers are all the time paying massive hush money on a just in case basis. You also have one with Lace Delight. What? Is that another adult film star? Yeah. Lace Delight. Lace Delight. We have a $300,000. Um, what? $300,000? Again, this is my money. I don't want you to worry about anything. Don't worry about Silky Dessert. She is not going to be talking about anything. Uh, I, I never even heard of any of these women until today. and that, So no, I was not worrying about them. First of all, you should look it up. These are, these are top quality stars of adult films. I'm not going to look it up. But I, I just want you to rest easy. Uh, these women are not going to be talking publicly about any relationship they may or may not have had with you. Wink. Why did you, you didn't even wink when you said it. You just no, said the just word say, wink. Yeah, I'm on my eyes, I, my eye doesn't wink very well, so I have to say it. Oh, okay. But I just, I don't want you to worry about this. That is what lawyers do. Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper improvised that sketch here in our studio. Joining me in Slate's Brooklyn studio are Michael Isakoff and David Korn. They're the authors of a new book, Russian Roulette, the inside story of Putin's war on America and the election of Donald Trump. It's the second book they've done together 
Welcome, Mike. Good to be with you, Jacob. And David, thanks for joining me. Glad to be here. This I'm a big fan of this book. Um, you guys, I just this is just I don't usually ask this kind of question. How do you write together? You work for different. <laughs> you work for different news yeah, organizations. Yeah. You work for for Mother Jones, David, and and you work for yeah. Yahoo News, Michael. And you know, you say so you're at some level competitors. I would imagine. And then, yes. but this book, I got to say, and I this is the second book you've written together. The first hubris about about the invasion of Iraq and the lies that were told about it or the misinformation about it. They're both terrific and they do not, this is the highest compliment I could give you, they do not read like they were written by two people, they read like they were written by a person. So how do you well, do that? Well, thank, thank you for saying that. Um, and I think in some ways it's a little bit of a wonder that we did a second book together. <laughs> As think, opposed to killing each other. Well, yeah, well you can ask, <laughs> ask the wise. very close um, at, uh, yeah. at various points. Um, yeah. I mean, it, it is difficult. Uh, it's hard for people to believe this, but, you know, Mike's an assertive person. And, uh, <laughs> and, I, am, and, I, and I recognize that sometimes I am too. And, and, uh, <laughs> and you're a shrinking violent. And I, I am too. And we have very strong ideas about the story, about what we're doing, how to write it, how to convey it. But we had, you know, the experience of, of working together 10 years ago, and we eventually forgot about that so we could start on this one. And we had each been covering the story uh, throughout the campaign and afterwards. Mike was the first guy to write about the fact that there was an FBI investigation of a person associated with the Trump campaign in September 2016. That was a man named Carter Page. And as we know now, and as we describe in the book that came about because Mike was one of the first reporters to talk to Christopher David Steele on a very deep off-the-record basis. And uh, uh, six weeks later, again before the election, I was the first to report on the existence of the Steele memos after talking myself to, to Christopher David Steele. So we had a deep familiarity with the story. We both have the dubious honor of having been named in the Nunes memo. The only two the journalists only, the only named two journalists. in the Nunes memo. But we, you yeah. know, but you know, we also, I think, you know, have different strengths and different areas where we were better sourced. And so the story in the book, we try to weave all these very divergent plot lines into one cohesive, co uh, comprehensive narrative, and it involves national security sources people on the Clinton campaign, pe uh, uh, people on the Trump campaign, people in the Obama White House, and, and others. And so joining forces to cover a wider territory made sense. We share the same agent, Gail Ross, who encouraged us to try to work together again. <laughs> and, um, and, we, you know, and, and we found that you know, the process was basically chaos. <laughs> it was like, as if we like borrowed a, the Trump White House. Yeah, yeah I was going to say, yeah. we borrowed a patient. We, we started writing, reporting, and editing immediately. We'd write up different portions, send them to each other, do uh, revisions back and forth. So I think the, the, the drafts went back and forth so many times that that's why it ends up sounding like some hybrid of us, <laughs> somebody in between, because there were a lot of compromises in how we decided to present things. But uh, at the end of the day, the you know the work speaks for itself. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna get into all this about uh, Carter Page, the dossier. But I want to start with the way, and one of the things I really liked about this book is the way you make sense of the Trump Russia connection by going back, right. way back, thirty years, and in a way, the continuous thread is that Donald Trump always wanted a building in Moscow with his damn name on it. Right. And if you want to just reduce it to like one 
thing that Trump wanted from Russia, that's the thing he's wanted for 30 years. Well, well he, he had, you're absolutely right. And as we point out in the book, he had these made these multiple attempts to do it. But the story in terms of the Trump presidency and you know, really begins with that Miss Universe pageant in Moscow in 2013, uh, when he flies to Moscow to preside over, you know, his his signature property, Miss Universe. But he's really interested is he sees this as the chance to finally do the deal in Moscow. For one thing, he's got a partner, Aris Agalarov billionaire oligarch who is close to Putin. And Aguilarov had agreed to sponsor the Miss Universe pageant. So he's got the beginnings of this relationship, but he sees this as an opportunity to get that Trump Tower in Moscow deal finally done with Aguilarov. And the one missing piece is what, what the, the reason he's so uh, excited about working with Aguilarov is Aguilarov had just not long before been awarded a medal by Putin. He was known as Putin's builder. He had done all these big construction projects for the for the Kremlin, including some big uh, uh, summit in Vladivostok that uh, Putin had. World, um, he, he was building World Cup. He was Cups building the World States. Cup. He was building the World Cup. Okay. So for Trump, the most important missing piece was getting Putin's blessing. And so this this is when you can really start to see it actually goes back five months earlier in Las Vegas when they first uh, when Aguilarov's first go to Moscow to Las Vegas and they agreed to sponsor the Miss Universe pageant. And that's when you start to see all these fawning comments about Putin. What a great guy Putin is. I know Putin. He really, uh, you know, he's doing a terrific job. There. And he repeatedly <laughs> lied and said he'd met him yeah. and already knew him and yeah. they had a relationship, none of which was true at the time. Trump right. was desperately trying to get him to show up at his right. beauty. Right. Right. But, the, but the point, the, uh, what really shows this and what shows it in the book, and it starts off in the first chapter is when he is in Moscow, you know, he's there with Miss Universe. And he's also thinking about a, a, this big tower deal that he wants to pull off with the Aguilarovs. But what he keeps asking everybody around him is, where's Putin? Is Putin coming to the pageant? Am I going to hear from Putin? Can I have a meeting with Putin? You know, he's there for 36 hours and this is what consumes him. And he, he's told, well, you're going to hear from Putin. Putin's going to call. And he keeps waiting. Where's the call? Where's the call? Where's the call? Finally, he gets the call. And it's not from Putin. It's from Dmitry Peskov, Putin's chief spokesperson, who explains that Putin's busy. The king of Holland is meeting with him and he's stuck in a traffic jam. Can't get to see you. That you Courtesy know, call. Sorry, you know, can't courtesy, make it. You know, courtesy call. Um, um, and he's and, and, and Trump is really, really disappointed. I think he thought that if he could sit down with Putin, that would be it. This would be the best relationship ever. He'd get whatever he wanted. The two of them would rule the world whether or not <laughs> he'd make rushed, a nuclear you know, treaty you know, while they were at it within, yeah. within an hour. And so he's really disappointed. And Trump being in fashion, I know you're going to find this really hard to believe, Jake. You know, he's talking about this with a with a staffer from Miss Universe, the organization, and he hears that, you know. Putin's not coming. He says, well, you know, we can tell people he came. Who's going to know? <laughs> <laughs> and they, you know, the staff says, no, we shouldn't do that. Yeah, I'll just pretend I've met him. You know, this I will say reading your account um, pushed me over the edge in thinking <laughs> there is no P-tape. And here's why. He was there for one night. 
He was out till two in the morning at some some dumb party. He had to leave early the next morning to fly back to wherever no, no, for to, Billy Graham's to, no, birthday no, party. No, yeah. no, the next morning he was leave. He left early to do a video shoot. Oh right, with right, right. And then okay. Aguilera. Right. right. Anyway, right. but then, but would you just think about the logistics of this? The, say, say that Keith Schiller was lying, and the five Russian prostitutes, the two Russian prostitutes, actually show up and pee on the bed where Obama slept. <laughs> Could you, do you get want, room service to like? Do you want to sleep in a room? Service? You get there at yeah. two in the morning. You don't want to sleep in a room uh, where on people the ca- on the couch. And it, yeah. Maybe no, there's a double, not, two it different beds. It didn't it's, happen, right? It's a, well, you know, we do uh, report Christopher Steele uh, finally says uh, about this uh, when pressed by colleagues. Uh, you know, he is, Famously said, he believed that seventy to ninety percent of the dossier was true, but on the particulars of the uh, P tape, uh, he said it's fifty-fifty. Now, there's actually evidence in our book on both sides. I have to say, we do reveal this uh, night in Las Vegas with Emin Aguilaroff and Rob Goldstone, where they go to this raunchy Las Vegas nightclub with Trump. Uh, with Trump, five months before Moscow, and one of the uh, un- unbeknownst to Trump at the time. This nightclub called The Act was uh, the target of undercover investigation by the Nevada Gaming Commission for its lewd and obscene performances, two of which, uh, as laid out in a judge's ruling, which we got a hold of, uh, involved uh, women simulating peeing on each other. And that was uh, a very good detail, Mike, but it's not evidence. I mean, this is not Trump's particular perversion. It just he just happened to be on the scene and maybe not. Even the but night but all, when they right, were doing, but also the it's also it's also important. Yeah. You, know, you know, it's important to point out that Chris Steele's larger concern, you know, was that the was Moscow had aimed for years to cultivate co-op Trump, and that part of that, not the entirety of it, was getting personal information on him. Uh, the P tape was one example. He does cite other sources and other memos talking about Trump engaging in personal conduct on other visits to Russia uh, that might have allowed Russian intelligence to gather information on him that might be damaging if released. I mean, I'm not saying there's any, you know, that that's confirmed or accurate, but his concern to be fair to Chris Steele, was larger than this one night. I mean, you cite the six-hour window, and I agree with you. If, if that's if we have the time scenario down, it does seem less likely that that happened. But I do want to just because we're exploring all different possibilities. We here just went. We just went right angles. there. This is you know. <laughs> right, I want right, to. I want right, to satisfy right, right. our listeners that, on this that point. Trump's alibi witness on this matter happens to be Keith Schiller, who says that, you know, he did get an offer from a Russian to bring uh, to have prostitutes brought to Trump's uh, hotel room in Moscow. He dismissed it, says we don't do that sort of thing. He then escorts Trump that night, that one night to his hotel room at the Ritz-Carlton. Trump goes in, he stands guard for a little while and then leaves. It's worth noting that um, uh, Stormy Daniels, a woman with whom I I believe you're familiar, 
here uh, in a certain uh, way. <laughs> in a certain way, Has right? She, she told me that she had Keith Schiller's cell phone number, right, and right. that was how she got in, in touch right. with Trump. And, so. and, and, she, and so Keith Schiller was her liaison for setting up uh, meetings with Donald Trump, and that and that Schiller would escort her to Trump's hotel room. Right. So one can, you know. But just to finish with this, if we want yes. to make sense out of it, it might yep. have been some some FSB agents bright idea to entrap Trump in this particularly clever way. And they might, in fact, on this particular night have said it's a little late, guys. Right. I mean, <laughs> that, that, but that, 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 that would account possibly for it being the Steele dossier, because if there was a plan to do this or an idea to do that, right. that might oh, have uh, uh, might have picked that up in his right. report. Jake, we could, you know, we could spin this for a lot longer. There could have, there, I mean, we, we quote in, in the book. This could be a podcast series. But the point yeah. is, we, we do report in the book that uh, uh, an associate, a guy named A.J. Benza, who was a, a gossip columnist, uh, who I covered know that Trump name. That's in, right. in, yeah, in the, the in the nineties? Said on a Howard Stern show that Trump once told him that he took trips to uh, Russia to engage in sexual activity be, uh, because women there did things that they didn't do el- elsewhere. So there, it, so it could well be if you want to keep spinning scenarios that the Russians had tracked him or watched him on other trips, and maybe stories got smushed together. I mean, at the end of the day, we don't know, but we do know that the Russian intelligence, this was a very conventional practice of theirs. Anybody prominent coming to town would be watched and listened in on in this sort of way. So if Trump did anything of that sort at any time on his trips to, on his multiple trips to Russia, you could expect, you could expect that the Russians would have some evidence of that. But that's, you know, theoretical it's abstract um i don't think we're going to get the truth out of donald trump i'm just you know waiting to see what stormy daniels has to say about something close to their home well watch cbs uh, maybe the, maybe this weekend but the rule we apply on this show we <laughs> there call, are rules no not not that kind of rule but we apply a rule called trump's razor which is when you're trying to explain something go with the stupidest possible explanation because it's the most likely to be right this is josh marshall's rule and it's very good and you guys actually come up with it right if we're trying to explain trump's affection for vladimir putin and his weird alliance with him he wants to build a ba- damn right. building with his name on it. Well, Why let, isn't that enough? Well, Why do we need let, a PJ? Let, let, let me take it a little step further, though. It, it, actually, from and this is again from the book. So they go to Moscow. He they do reach an agreement. Trump does with the Aguilarups. There's a letter of intent signed to build that Trump Tower. Donald Trump Jr. is put in charge of the project. February 2014. A few months later, Ivanka flies to Moscow to scout. Potential sites for Trump Tower with Emin Agalarov. What happens? That's the same month the Ukraine crisis blows up. Putin annexes Crimea, intervenes in Ukraine. The U.S. and E.U. impose sanctions on uh, Russia. One of those sanctioned is Spurbank, which was the majority Sperm, owned. Spurbank, as we call it okay, here on the show. All right. yeah, so. We have Russian government-owned, majority-owned bank that was going to finance the Trump Tower deal. And it is the, at, at this time that the Trump Tower deal collapses. It was now, killed by sanctions. I, I mean, well, that was Rob probably. Goldstone's theory. He I mean, believes the sanctions... that that was what killed it. So if that's the case, it explains a lot, including 
Trump's hostility to sanctions. It killed his dream yeah. of Trump well, in, in Moscow. And, and yeah. you, you know, you raised the point of, you know, again, a, sort of a clue hiding in plain sight. Why is he engaged in this bromance or something darker with, with Vladimir Putin? It doesn't end there. To me, what is stunning, and it was reported, but I don't think it's been fully absorbed, is that for the first few months of his campaign as president, when he's leading the pack, he has another deal. He's negotiating another deal to build a tower in Moscow. And he's doing this with a fellow who I'm sure you've discussed a lot of times on the show named Felix Sater, a former felon. And while he's doing this, he's not telling the voters to whom he says, I will put America's interests first. He's, you know, he's trying to build this deal and it can only happen with Putin's approval. And so when he's asked about Putin as a presidential candidate, he is saying again what he's continued to say all along positive things. Joe Scarborough says, well, he's a killer. He murders journalists. And Trump says, how do you know that? It's not proven. Well, what else could he say if his chief concern was negotiating this deal? Can you go out there and say, you're right. He's a thug. He's a murderer. He's a killer. We should have nothing to do with him while you're trying to negotiate a deal with him. So that was one of, I think, the biggest secrets that he kept. And then later on, he said, I had nothing to do with Russia, of course, as you know, is a lie. But that I think represents some of the profound strangeness of the uh, of the Putin Trump relationship and the fact that he really kept a lot of this a secret. Well, there's a huge uh, change in context, David. Right in in 2016, when it suddenly appears possible that Donald Trump could win the nomination and potentially get elected president. So you know, people say, well. You know, the the Internet Research Agency wasn't trying to elect Donald Trump at the beginning. They weren't. That wasn't on the horizon. At some point in 2016, it became a possibility, a target of opportunity. And likewise, Donald Trump may well have started running for president thinking, hey, this is an opportunity to increase my chances of building Trump Tower Moscow. But at some point. He accidentally became a real candidate, well, a viable to, candidate. But I hate to correct you. There's one thing that we have in the book is that in 2015, this great reporter named Adrian Chen, who had basically written the first English about the, uh, story Internet, about Research about the Internet Research yeah. Agency in June or July of 2015 and exposing what was doing, something that the U.S. intelligence community continued to miss. In December of 2015, he goes on. A podcast. And he goes, you know, I've been keeping track of these IRA, Internet Research Agency bots that I've been, you know, that have been doing all sorts of weird things in the last year or two. And I've noticed December 2015, a lot of them now have become conservative trolls for Trump. So from an early period. Well, that's about when it would have happened, yeah, though, yeah, right? Sure, I mean, yeah, those yeah. were after the initial debates, and he was getting all this attention yeah, but, and yeah. all this traction. Yeah, and that right, was, right yeah. there, right? When yeah. he's taking off, it seems like a switch is thrown. That's when a smart bot would start trolling for Trump <laughs> yeah. instead of just against Hillary. Nate Silver says he has a better chance. That's what we're doing now. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's also clear that that's about the time that you can see the Kremlin really making a concerted effort to 
penetrate the Trump campaign, to cultivate people in the Trump campaign. You know, uh, George Papadopoulos gets named to the Foreign Policy Advisory Board, and suddenly this professor he'd met in Italy who had paid him no attention uh, but had all these connections to the uh, Kremlin uh, start follows up with him, starts to cultivate him in London, uh, uh, takes him to lunch with a woman he introduces as Putin's niece. That's when Carter Page, who got named to the Foreign Policy Advisory Board, gets invited to speak at the new economic school in Moscow and give this prestigious address that's covered by the pro-Putin media in in Russia. Um, so you really see um, uh, a, a concerted effort, a campaign to, you know, they see this guy and the people around him as people they can exploit. You know, it's like f- it's full service. It's like uh, a zo- you know, complete zone coverage. They're trying to penetrate the campaign, obviously, to get their hooks into it, to find out what's happening, maybe to even to influence it. And at the same time, they start moving. They've started penetrating the Democratic Party. They've, they've gotten into John Podesta's email um, in the spring of 2016. Right. And so they start a campaign also to tilt the field in Trump's favor, certainly against Hillary at the start, and then probably more with the aim to help Trump. So the Russians really are are covering it both ways. What can we do to figure out how to help or how to understand the Trump campaign, get people in there? We still don't have the full story on what Manafort was telling Deripaska, the Russian oligarch who he owed millions of dollars to while he was running the campaign. But we do know they were reaching out to and trying to cultivate Carter Page and and Papadopoulos. At the same time, they were trying to influence things. And at the same time, you know, later on when this becomes public, the Trump campaign, this is what I call collusion. We don't necessarily say it explicitly in the book, but they engage in the cover-up. They keep denying when they have reason to believe and they have reason to know when they've been informed that the Kremlin wants to help them, they keep going out there publicly and saying, there's no Russian meddling here. Imagine if you were standing in front of a bank and you knew the bank was being robbed, and you said to people passing by, there's no bank robbery going on. Now, whether that's illegal or not depends on how much you knew beforehand, but that's collusion in a cover-up. That's providing an alibi in the book. We call it aiding and abetting. So there's like a lot of different Russian angles all being played simultaneously. So let me ask you to to rate those angles a little bit. There are lots of different collusion scenarios uh, many, if not all of these, being investigated by Robert Mueller. But there is the Papadopoulos scenario. There is the Carter Page scenario. There is the Paul Manafort scenario. There is the Roger Stone scenario. Uh, there is the Trump the, Tower, the Trump Tower meeting, yeah. uh, the, the, which I guess would be the Aguilera of the continuation right. of that. That's at least five or six. Now, it's possible they're all true. It's possible they're all coordinated. It's possible none of them meant it will turn out to be anything, but that there was a cover up without a crime. Or maybe there's something more like what you were talking about, David, where there wasn't very active collusion, but there was some recognition of what was probably happening and an effort to downplay it. What if, having steeped yourselves in all of this culture around Trump and Trump's campaign, what do you think are the most I, likely scenarios? I, I think it's very hard to imagine this was a grand conspiracy that was well thought out and plotted in which there were regular meetings and contacts and you do that, I do that, you know, if for no other reason that the Trump 
campaign like the Trump White House, like everything about Trump is engulfed in chaos. <laughs> it would be incompatible with the level of chaos <laughs> yeah, that we're familiar yeah, with. Yeah. You know, they, they wouldn't be, have been capable of pulling off a grand conspiracy like that. But that is also what made them so vulnerable mm. to these various Russian approaches and manipulations. Um, I mean, look, we already have uh, people who have been criminally charged in and around, uh, you know, Donald Trump, uh, you know, Papadopoulos has pled guilty uh, to, uh, to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russians. Michael Flynn has pled guilty to lying to the FBI about his contacts with with Russians. The um, uh, Manafort and Ga- uh, Gates has now pled guilty in himself and and uh, and Paul Manafort, Manafort's partner, yep. under indictment facing the rest of his life in prison. Um my rule of thumb is you unleash the FBI uh, on somebody or some entity like this. They're going to find stuff. And it's hard to imagine we've got the full story. I think we add a lot to it in this book. I think we've added a lot of details uh, that 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 people didn't know before and helps make the narrative, you know, more comprehensible. But, um, you know, my gut is there's going to be more coming because you know to imagine that we've heard it all based on the accounts so far is is really let me add one thing to this i think there are a few elements that still remain out there that maybe robert Mueller will get to but we know that ambassador kislyak the russian ambassador sergey kislyak told the washington post over a year ago now that he had meetings with michael flynn before the election. Why is this important? Michael Flynn in mid-August with Donald Trump are briefed by the U.S. intelligence community and they're told there's no question about it. Whatever Donald Trump is saying in the public about Russians not meddling, they are. They're, be- they're behind the hacks, they're behind the dumps. The inte- U.S. intelligence community knew at that point who the cutouts were, how the information was being passed to WikiLeaks, and they also were aware that Russians were penetrating and probing state election systems. So some degree of this is conveyed to Donald Trump, Michael Flynn, and Chris Christie, who was in on the meeting, too, in mid-August. If Michael Flynn is meeting with Kislyak any time after that, what do you think he's saying? What are they talking about? I'm not saying they're colluding on what to do, but if he gives any signal to Kislyak, you know, we can have a great relationship uh, if we win and we can work on sanctions of fighting ISIS and says nothing about this information warfare campaign, which is what it was that was underway. He is sending a signal that we're okay with this. And to me, you know, that seems, at least as a theory, quite feasible. It seems hard to believe that Flynn would say, knock it off. I won't talk to you unless you stop. Jeff Sessions also had a meeting with Kislyak in September of 2016. So I think there are some big issues out there, if not about sitting down and planning what to hack and where to dump it, just what the contacts were when the Trump campaign had been told, and it was publicly known, that this was underway. All right, I want a separate answer from each of you on this one. You're Writing a sequel to Russian Roulette separately, <laughs> separately. Russian Roulette two, second second bullet in the yeah, in, in yeah, the yeah, chamber. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to commit now. Whose <laughs> picture is going to be on the cover? Not Trump, not Vladimir Putin. But say we've we've learned a lot. What hunch do you want to play about this scandal of all those names we just mentioned? Oh, uh, I, I think I got one. Corn, you go first. Um, McConnell and Ryan. 
All because, right. Because it depends, you know, I'm looking ahead to the 2018 midterms. We had uh, Admiral Mike Rogers, the head of the National Security Agency, say just a couple of days ago that he believes Russians will try it again. And we do know this is in the book. Well, everything we talk about is in the book. But this is yet another <laughs> reason why people should read the book. Uh, I think people forget, you know, that during the 2016 campaign, the Russians also meddled in congressional elections. They hacked the Democratic campaign a Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, which is the outfit in charge of helping all the Democratic candidates running for House seats. And they put out information in a really strategic way that targeted some of the key races that Democrats hoped they could get some pickups um, against the Republicans. And it was quite stunning the impact that these uh, leaks had, um, in some cases decisively. So if Admiral Rogers says that we can expect them to meddle in the 2018 election and we see that they've had the ability to do it and know how to do it, and I think it's actually easier to intervene in a local election where there isn't as much security and as much sophistication about how to stop this, these things, that we may well be moving ahead to an election that will be once again you know, shaped, influenced, if not determined by Russian meddling. And I imagine it will be done to benefit Republicans. You know, maybe not. Maybe maybe may, not, right? May, I mean, may, if may, their may, ultimate goal is to sow chaos it, and it undermine might, the it, American political it, it system, be. impeachment might serve their interests. Yeah, you can make that case. But, um, you know, you asked me to make a bet. Yeah. Right. My bet is if they do it, it would help Republicans. And therefore, I'd put McConnell and Ryan on the cover because they have been quiet. They've been complicit with Trump's denialism. And they've taken no steps that I see to make sure this doesn't happen again. Mike, I was actually thinking a little, that was a very good answer, but I was a little l- thinking less about future Russian meddling and more about where this scandal is most likely headed. Well, I'm going to go with my four favorite characters in the book. All right. Um, Rob Goldstone and Emin Aguilarov, who I refer to as the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern <laughs> of this uh, story. Uh, they pop up everywhere. They're with Trump in Vegas at the act. They're in uh, Trump. They're in Moscow with, with Trump. Uh, they set up the Trump Tower meeting. There was actually an earlier, a first Trump Tower meeting we talk about in the book uh, in which uh, they, they show up at Trump Tower and are welcomed by Trump and learn about Trump's plans to run for president. And then my other two are uh, Alexander Torshin and Maria Butina, the sort of uh, 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 Boris and Natasha of the story. Yes, yeah, say who they are. Uh, they yeah. are they are delightful characters. I, I, I did not know about. Yes, Alexander Torshin is the deputy governor of the Russian Central Bank. Was a leader of Putin's uh, United uh, Russia Party in the Duma. Very close to Putin. Um, was under investigation for years for money laundering uh, by Spanish authorities um, and. And um, because he was connected to Russian Russian mobsters, that was the allegation and um, and is a lifetime member of the NRA uh, and was showing up regularly at NRA conventions um, and inviting NRA members, NRA leaders to Moscow. Uh, He had an executive. He's a sort of a short, pudgy guy. And he had an executive assistant, this tall, striking redhead, Maria Butina, who kept was always around 
around with him and uh, kept sort of um, uh, going up to all sorts of influential conservative activists and um, cultivating friendships with them. Will and, you be my Facebook <laughs> friend? <laughs> yes, right. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of suspicions about uh, their role. Um, they uh, Their emails in which they were trying to meet with Trump at, uh, uh, at the NRA convention in Louisville. Um, they show up at the uh, they show up at the NRA convention. They show up at CPAC conferences. Um, it's very weird. And if you were looking for Russian attempts to um, influence, to penetrate the American political process, it seems to me that, you know, they are the sorts of characters you'd be looking at. Um, lastly, uh, a Russian sex worker, can we say high-priced Russian <laughs> sex worker in prison in Thailand yeah. claims to know stuff. Yeah. What do we well, what do we make of this story? Yeah. Well, uh, it, no, no stuff from Deripaska, yes. right? Who is a character uh, in this book lurking in the background? He was a business partner of Paul Manafort for many years. And one of the most fascinating things about the Manafort story is at the time that Manafort becomes the campaign manager for Donald Trump, he's being pursued by Deripaska because Deripaska thinks he sticked him, uh, uh, stiffed him on a Ukrainian cable deal. And, uh, for $18 million. For, for $18 million. I mean, right. We've talked yeah. about this a lot on the show. Yeah. And Manafort yeah. wanted the the job in part to get out of uh, hot water with to Deripaska. To get out of hot water. And then is offering Deripaska private briefings in the campaign. Yeah. Maybe that will tamp him down and uh, and mollify him while I try to come up with the, all the money that I... Uh, that that I owe him. Um, so it does look, I mean, Deripaska oligarch close to Putin. I mean, I guess that's redundant because if you're an oligarch, yeah. not close to Putin, you're an ex oligarch <laughs> right, or a right, polonium right. flavored or, or, oligarch, or but you're in a Siberian uh, prison. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so I mean, what she has to say, I'll be very interested in, in hearing. I mean, maybe she'll be the sort of point counterpoint to stormy Daniels. I mean, you know, we'll have all sorts of women coming out of the world woodwork telling fast. Fascinating no, no. stories that will shed light on the story. In fact, I'm going to take back my earlier answer. I want that woman on and, the cover and Stormy. That would certainly sell. Yeah, that would sell more books. But you know, when I think about what we what we're going through with the, with the Trump Russia scandal, I do think about Watergate and Iran Contra. And, and, and without saying one is worse or better than the other, but in each of those stories. And you were there, Jake. We're all old enough to remember this. There and you and, and, the, and the great podcast you guys recently did about Watergate shows that not only is there a weird cast of characters, that you have the main storyline, Nixon, you know, Nixon goons breaking into the Watergate, but that then reveals a strange, bizarre world with all these other schemes, attempts to or, or ideas to kill journalists, to bomb the Brookings Institution, you know, the the, the Joint Chiefs of Staffs spying on the Nixon White House. In Iran-Contra, it wasn't just a deal with with, with Tehran to sell them arms and, and find a way to support the Contras fighting the Sandinista regime in Nicaragua. It was drug dealing, gun dealing, back and forth, rich Texans holding fundraisers and evading taxes. I, 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 one of my least favorite cliches, unfortunately, applies to this. And that's the tip of the iceberg. Bringing it back to Robert Mueller, you know, we I think we've seen with him just the tip of the iceberg of all the stuff he can look at. We can see 
the scandal going in a lot of different directions, maybe some financial issues, Mike talking about the NRA connection and the, with the Russians. There's so much here that um, I don't think if, if we ever want to work together again, <laughs> it won't be difficult to write Russian roulette 2.0 or 3.0. I've been speaking to Michael Isikoff and David Korn. Their new book is Russian Roulette. Um, Mike and David, thanks for joining me on the show today. Hey, Thank you. That's it for today's show. Trumpcast was produced by Jason DeLeon. Our sketch was improvised here in the studio by Steve Waltine and Asher Perlman of The Opposition with Jordan Klepper. And hey, I have an announcement, particularly for any lawyers who happen to be listening. Slate's looking to hire a sharp writer to write a new legal newsletter for us. Come on, wouldn't you rather think and write and argue about the most interesting legal developments as opposed to practicing law? If so, you should apply for this job. You can find out more at Slate.com slash legal writer. I'm Jacob Weisberg. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast.